Today I would want to um, start my message a little bit differently than I normally do. I'd like to start it interactively. So here's a question that I'd like for you to respond to. And it is a question I think that is applicable to each and every one of us, no matter where we have been. And the question is this, where is the place that you have visited that stirred your soul the most? Now, it must be someplace on earth. It's not an event, not a sporting event or a concert or anything like that. Think sky, think sea, think mountains, think trails, think forest, okay? So I'm going to show you a few of mine with some pictures in a moment, but where have you been that have stirred you up in your soul by what you have seen? Anybody want to share? Yeah, Annie. Okay. Okay, Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Where, where else? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, very good. Somebody else? Yeah. Oh, oh nice. Very good. Anybody else? Hillsborough Beach in Florida. Okay. Okay, in Ontario and Canada on the lake. Oh, nice. Okay, excellent. Anybody else? All right. Okay, let me share you with you a couple of slides. Um, and these are all photographs that I've taken over the years of some places that I really love. So, uh, first of all, this picture here uh, is from the Word of Life complex down in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I uh, went down there twice to do some speaking. And this particular lake is just amazing and it has a trail that you can walk around it. And the things that you see when you walk around this lake is amazing. And here's what I saw. Two owls that were just sitting there by the lake that I was able to take a picture of. And they didn't move at all. They just It was almost as if they were saying cheese as I was taking the photograph. Here's another one. This was a picture um, when Esty and I went to visit the Gwyns when they were living in Damascus, Virginia. And this was along the Appalachian Trail in Virginia and just the beauty of the forest and the rocks and the river. Here's another one. This is what I thought you would say. Uh, so my wife uh, immigrated from Croatia back in the 70s and back in 2013, we had the opportunity to go back to Croatia, and it was there that we took a trip along the coast. And this was the first city that went up along the coast, and this is called Dubrovnik, okay? You might be familiar with the name because there's a restaurant at Dubrovnik Gardens on 91 and Lakeshore Boulevard down in Eastlake, and they have excellent food if you ever want to try it. If you want to try some chabapchichi and uh, palachinka and some of the other things that are Croatian food, it's excellent. But this is just beautiful. It's a mix of the ocean and the mountains and, of course, the, uh, the, the quaint village of Dubrovnik. Here's another one. This is a picture of the Grand Canyon when we had the opportunity to go there a couple of years ago. And you can get right to the edge of some of these spots and take pictures, and you have to be careful that you don't take a step too far, okay? 
This is Hillsborough Beach that Esty was just talking about down in Florida, and this is where Bud and Shelly uh, have a condo, and we have had the opportunity to go down there a couple times. This is a guy that was out on the water uh, paddle boarding at sunset, and it's amazing the different scenes that the ocean projects. So this is the same ocean on a different night, and you can see the clouds and the sun setting behind it. Now, I could give to you all kinds of slides of pictures over the years. Um, when we went back to Croatia uh, in 2013, I think I took 4,000 pictures. You don't have that much time. Okay. <laughs> but here's what I want you to think about. There are places on earth that have somehow stirred your soul in some way, whether it's a sunset or whether it's a trail or whether it's a part of the world that has the bluest waters you ever want to see. These places here are so precious and sacred because they do something for us as human beings. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Perhaps that place that you have in your mind, how would you feel if all of a sudden that spot on the face of the earth was wiped out? It might be through a natural disaster that changed the landscape, or maybe it is the horrors of war, or maybe it's just neglect of the care of the planet. So how does the earth that we call our home play into our relationship with God? How does it play into our spiritual life? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is that the earth is an expression of God. So we have read a couple of passages of scripture today, and what we need to understand is when we come to those moments in our lives where our soul is stirred in some way, it's not just the natural beauty. You are actually experiencing God at that moment because what we know is that God commissioned mankind to take care of the earth, and it's almost as if he is giving himself in the process. You know, in Western Christianity... The earth is often thought of as simply a consumable. It's another resource that we use to our own ends. But we read in Genesis chapter 1 that when God created man, he gave him the responsibility to rule over the planet. Now, a lot of people have often thought that means that we can do anything we want with the resources on the earth. But if we are not careful, many of the good gifts that God gives to us that we enjoy can be consumed through industry, uh, through pollution, through different things that can actually make this beautiful earth that we call home something that isn't as beautiful. You know, when we talk about God giving man the dominion over the earth, that's not the same thing as destruction. Dominion is not destruction. Dominion is a responsibility like a park ranger has responsibility to take care of the national parks. It's to watch over it. It's to be careful with it. It is to do something that will enhance that national park, okay? Creation is made of God. 
one of the early fathers of the church, uh, uh, an individual by the name of Julian of Norwich, uh, puts it like this. We are made from the light that was in the beginning. We are made of the wisdom that fashioned the universe in its glory and interrelatedness. That's an important term. We as human beings are interrelated to the planet that we live on. You know, a primary feature of our understanding of the gift of this planet that we live on is becoming more and more aware of how to live in harmony with it. Now, that is not to say that many of the things that are given are not to be used for food. Certainly they are. However, we need to be careful because it is very sensitive. And if we do not take the responsibility of understanding that it is very fragile, then one of the things that can happen is we can lose it. You know, sometimes we see animals that were once populous, like the buffalo, during the days of the indigenous people that lived here, go down to, from millions, to a thousand buffalo. Now it's started to climb back up. But it almost went extinct because of our lack of care of the planet. So one of the things that we need to understand is that our desire to connect with God somehow is associated with the planet that we live on. And many of the unnameable and untamable expressions of God are often found in the things that are around us. It's not just in the Bible, and it's not just at church, or it's not just in some sacred place like a temple. It's in the everyday creation theater that we enjoy each and every day. You know, everything that has emerged in space and in time has come forth from a tiny pinprick of light that exploded into an ongoing process over 13.8 billion years ago. The physicist David Bohm put it this way in his work, Wholeness and the Implicate Order. He says this, everything is like an explication of what was implicated in that first moment. Everything that has unfolded in space and time was present in utero in the universe beginnings. So interrelated are we in all things with that initial flaring forth of light. So all things in the universe were made and begin to unfold. All things that have been hidden in the secret folds that we continue to discover through science, what we find is they are often waiting for the time of their manifestation. So in the biblical perspective of the ancient writers, the earth is sacred. Every tree and bush, flower and creature, every hill and mountain is on fire with the divine. And we see this in a story by, uh, in the Old Testament of Moses. Now, in Moses' uh, experience of God, we're told in Exodus chapter 3, and you can read this on your own, I'm not going to turn there, but there's this story that he is out taking care of the flocks of his father-in-law, a guy by the name of Jethro. If you know anything about the story of Moses, you know that he had to flee from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian. But he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. He was raised in the lap of luxury. He commits this murder, and he goes into exile in 
to the wilderness, and what we find is he marries his wife and his father-in-law, a guy by the name of Jeff Jethro, not the one on the Beverly Hill Billies. Um, we find that he has a huge flock. He's well off. And one of the things that Moses did for years is take care of his flock. Now, can you imagine what a monotonous job this is for years, day after day? Same ground, same flock, same routine, right? Talk about monotony. But one day, as he's watching the flock, he notices that there is a bush that's on fire. Now, that might not be all that unusual. It's hot. Maybe there is some type of spontaneous fire that erupted. But he goes past it. He comes back again, and it's still burning. He goes past it again and comes back, and it's still burning. And so all of a sudden, it, it captures his attention. And he goes over, and he's, he's trying to figure out why this bush has not burned up. And all of a sudden, Exodus chapter 3 tells us that he hears this voice. And the text tells us it's the angel of the Lord that speaks to him. And here's what the angel of the Lord says to Moses. He says, take off your shoes. You are standing on holy ground. Fascinating comment. Now, he'll have some additional information. Uh, he will be told that he's going to be the deliverer of the Israelites out of slavery. But take off your shoes. You're on holy, sacred ground. Did it become holy and sacred just at that moment that he has this epiphany with God? I read the text as, no, it's always been holy and sacred. Moses never really realized it until he had an experience. And when he has this experience, this common bush is aflame with the presence of God, and he takes off his shoes, and he begins to look at this entirely different than he'd had before. Elizabeth Barrett Browning puts it this way. She says, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest just sit around and pick blackberries. Interesting way of putting it. So the place where God and man meet can be anywhere. But in religion, a lot of times, there are places that become sacred. So... Moses will meet God on Mount Sinai a little bit later in Exodus. And that becomes a sacred spot. Jerusalem becomes a sacred spot. There are these places in Christianity that are considered sacred spots if you go to the Holy Land, which I have never been there, but that must be fascinating to see. But in other religions, it might be Mecca. It might be some other city. It might be some other place where there's a temple these places become sacred because of something that has happened there. Wendell Berry put it this way, there are no sacred places or non-sacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. In other words, it's up to us to recognize the holiness of the creation around us. And what we do is open our eyes, we open our understanding that this is a gift, this is a gift. This is a gift. Not only our life is a gift, but everything that has been given to us called earth is a gift as well. There's a guy by the name of John Muir. He lived from 1838 to 1914. That, uh, he was a naturalist. 
He was a poet. He was an individual that had a lot of writings. Um, and he said that the earth itself is like a divine incarnation. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was born and raised in Scotland, and then his family moved to Wisconsin back in 1849. And he began to see that every life form, every rock formation is throbbing and pulsating with divine presence if we will notice it. So where did Muir assess this cherished image of listening for all things for the heartbeat of God? Well, it wasn't from his father. His father was a Scottish Calvinist that said that the only way that God speaks to us is through the holy book, the Bible. And so John Muir had to memorize the entire New Testament and portions of the Old Testament. And if he messed up in reciting this back to his uh, very staunch and angry father, he would get beaten with a rod. Can you believe that? You see, your perception of God will often dictate your actions. Well, John Muir continued down the path that he was going, and he was an individual that said, there are two texts that God communicates to us by. And he says, the little text and the big text. The little text is this book that is confined to a space and time hundreds and thousands of years ago. But the big text, he said, is the creation around us. A little book, a holy book, certainly. But the sacred text of the universe is continuing to unfold for us the presence of God. We read earlier the psalmist that says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this. He says, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that have been made. And then Muir went on to talk about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he talked about how uh, his, his message called us back to connect to creation. In Matthew 6, 25 through 29, he talks about looking at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and the grass of the field, and all of these are precious expressions of God. So here's what we're saying. Every living thing is a disclosure of the earth's sacredness, and the Bible tells us to read the creation around us, to appreciate it, and to take care of it. If Muir is right, our hope lies in the wildness of God that is still to be expressed as found in nature. And with this realization comes a responsibility for us to take care of God's big text, not just the little text. Now, I read a portion for us earlier out of Genesis chapter 1. This is called the creation account. And what is different about the Bible's creation account than other world religions is in other religions around the world, often creation comes out of a cosmic battle between the gods. That's not found in the Bible. What we find in the Bible is the expression of God saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then on the sixth day, when he creates mankind, or he allows mankind to emerge from this long, long process, he says, this is very good. Out of this good creation comes mankind. And the imagery is from the dust of the ground and a breathing in to the life of those first uh, 
ancestors that we call uh, mankind. To know the beauty of creation is to know something about how God breathes into us life. The reason you are stirred by the places that you visit is because it's not just a beautiful place on earth, it is a person, God revealing himself in those moments. That's why you're connecting to it. That's why you feel stirred by it. You know, most of the time, what we find is that in Christianity especially, we argue about mundane things. Are these six 24-hour days in Genesis chapter 1? Um, uh, how old is the earth? No, 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 no. That's missing the mark. What it's talking about is our interconnectedness with creation. And certainly what we know through scientific research is that the earth really is millions and billions of years old. And that's okay. God takes his time to form the earth and the universe. And if it is really true that there are billions of galaxies, no wonder it takes billions of years for that to develop. You know, the light that we see on a dark night from a star is years old, light years old. It's just reaching earth, but it is very old. So stop thinking about earth as simply another consumable. If we cut down the rainforest, imagine how much money we can make out of the lumber that we can develop. We gotta be careful and balance our needs as human beings, right? We have needs for consumable things to live by, and yet at the same time take care of the planet. So today we hear many voices denouncing the abuse of the environment. Many times they are ignored because you can't make as much money if you're going to take care of the environment. So what happens then? When do we reach a point of no return? Whether you believe in global warming or not, the scientists speak in to these moments that we have. And we are not to ignore this information because it's inconvenient for us. What we need to understand is that deep within us is this primal love for the earth. And this earth is something that we are commissioned to take care of. To ignore her beauty is to ignore God. To abuse her gifts is to blaspheme God. You know, I just mentioned Paul. He says that all of creation, in Romans 8, he says, is groaning for the expression of fullness. In Isaiah 14, the prophet says in verses 7 and 8 that the whole creation bursts forth into singing. So what do we call that in English? A personification. The trees of the field will clap their hands the scriptures say. C.S. Lewis said, because God created nature and invented it out of his love and artistry, it demands our reverence. T.S. Eliot said, a wrong attitude toward nature implies somewhere a wrong attitude toward God. So nature is this living icon of the face of God, the presence of God. And probably the most famous person associated with this is St. Francis of Assisi. And he often tells us that we are to embody the restoration still to come as much as possible. He says God requires that we assist the animals when they need our help. He also says if you have men who will exclude any of God's creatures from shelter of compassion and pity, you will have men who will deal likewise with their fellow men. 
So God's infinite love is expressed in matter and in energy. And so when you look at the water, it is a liquid expression of the love of God. When you see a 50-ton whale swimming in the ocean, it's an expression of the love of God. Creation is a sacrament to the holy mystery of God's infinite love. Every grain of sand is an expression of God's love. Every leaf is an expression of God's love. So let's appreciate it. That's my whole point this morning. Let's appreciate it. Let's take it in. And let's use it as an opportunity to praise God. So I'm going to have Emma and Corey come back up. And what we're going to do is we're going to stand together. And what we're going to do is we're going to understand that the deeper we move into the mystery of creation, the closer we come to the divine presence. This is another photograph that I took. And guess where this one's at? Osborne Park in North Willoughby. So there, it's all around us if we will open our eyes to see it. And that's why we need to stand and sing a couple of verses of how great thou art. <clears throat> so the Krancevics were over in Scotland not too long ago. And that part of the world, uh, Scotland and Ireland, has a form of spirituality, uh, Celtic or Celtic spirituality, which is much more attuned to creation and experiencing God through creation rather than just through religious text or uh, church services. So I think we've all heard of St. Patrick, right? Okay, we all get dressed up in green on March 17th because of it. But there is a song called St. Patrick's Breastplate. And one of the verses that I'd like to close with here today says this, I bind unto myself today the virtues of the starlit heaven, the glorious sun's life-giving ray, the whiteness of the moon at even, the flashing of the lightning free, the whirling winds, tempestuous shocks, the stable earth, the deep salt sea around the old eternal rocks. You know, that's something that, again, reminds us to keep our eyes open, to look for God's presence in the things that we, like Moses, might just walk by every so often. But if we'll stop and we'll take a breath and we will observe, it might be just there that your soul will be stirred. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. Good to see you again.